Before I uh, introduce myself, I just want to throw a few questions at you by way of getting your minds going. Um, the title this morning is, How Different Do You Want to Be? A very deliberate title, because I'm not suggesting you should want to be different at all. I want to tell you to be different. Um, that's part of the point of what I'm going to say, actually. How different do you actually want to be? And does it involve changing your mind, literally the way that you see things? And if we're going to have the next slide, Alex, please. And I, I read a commentary on this passage, which I thought, well, I only got one chapter into it, actually. Um, but there you go. Um, and this is John Stott, who died last year. Um, one of the great men of God of our age, one of the great writers of our age, who said this. He said, the Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known part of the teachings of Jesus, though arguably the least understood and certainly the least obeyed. So just let that kind of sink in a little bit. And then he says this a bit further down. The most hurtful thing that anyone can ever say to a Christian is, you're just the same as everyone else. And I throw that out to you as a little challenge in this, this age when we're trying to be relevant and reach people and show that we're not, inverted commas, nutters, you know, although a lot of people thought that's exactly what Jesus was. Um, this last comment, the most hurtful thing that anyone can ever say to a Christian is you're just the same as everyone else. So good morning. My name is Barry. I'm one of the uh, pastoral team here. It's great to see you here. Um, I'm going to throw out one or two little statements like that and invite you back to someone else's house afterwards, which is big of me, isn't it? Um, if you want to come back for coffee, a few bickies, and to chew over some of this for an hour, we're going to go back to John's place, John and Ruth's place after, after church, about quarter to eleven, something like that. Number six, Midhurst, that way. Don't go that way. Go that way. Number six, if you want to meet us, we'll gather in the, or come down on your own, but we'll, we'll probably be out there in the foyer uh, in between the services. Come back, have a cup of coffee, and tell me what you think about what I've had to say about this passage. And I want to advertise one or two other things that are going on in the church during the course um, of the, the talk. Having said that, I want to take a commercial break. So I wonder if you'd just like to have a look at this advert, which Alex is going to play for us. I'll explain its relevance, I hope. Now I'm going to get the dessert. How does she do it? She looks amazing. Let's go find out. Okay, come on. So smooth, so creamy. Yes, that's a shame. Let me fill in the gaps for you. Uh, it's the most anonymous advert. Have you ever seen it? Have you ever seen it? Okay. Basically, four women in someone's house. Um, she looks amazing. How does she do it? They hunt the house. They rip out all the drawers. They look for everything. And the secret is a yogurt. Okay, that's it. All right. What is going on? in that ad. I'm sorry it didn't play properly. Where is that playing to in your consciousness? Um, 
First of all, um, despite the fact that we have the ASA and endless trades description legislation, it's pure lies from start to finish. Every single thing that you saw or didn't see in that clip is false. The people are false. They don't exist. Only the actresses exist. She doesn't look any more amazing than any of the others. They all look amazing, and they wouldn't use anyone who didn't look amazing, because advertising doesn't, right? The house is false. It doesn't belong to any of them. They're not her drawers or cupboards or whatever. Um, it's not a personal testimony. Probably that's the first time any of those women have eaten that yogurt. Um, and crucially, the product claim is a manifest untruth, right? Let me tell you from personal experience... <laughs> that eating large amounts of dairy products does not make you beautiful. <laughs> Imagine if they told the truth and some bloke, looking not unlike me, came on and said, I eat loads of this, it's made me fat and ugly, but it tastes lovely. <laughs> Buy it. It does not play to the intellectual mind, does it? It doesn't play to the rational decision-making process, what's going on in your head. And a great deal of our marketing doesn't do that. I don't have a problem with that. I think you just need to know that's what's going on. And don't eat loads of yogurt, because it will not make you look like those women. It plays to something else. It plays to the imagination. So it's a set of ideas that's lobbed into your consciousness that starts certain cogs ticking that eventually makes you go and behave in a certain way. It's aiming to change your mind and cause you to do something. Um, I could have picked any number of ads. I just happened to latch onto that one. And I could go off on a tangent here and bemoan um, advertising the lies culture or the, you know, the, the, the kind of rubbish that, that we are peddled. But I won't because, you know what, that's exactly what Jesus did. He lobbed ideas into the imagination in order to stimulate something much more important than your rational mind. He was the master of image casting, of vision casting, of um, asking questions of you through explosive pictures. Except that, of course, what Jesus says is the profound truth, not a set of misleading claims about something that can't deliver. And I don't think, and this is, this is something we can chat about, that the kingdom of God that Jesus came to bring was ever meant to be about a whole new set of external rules with forced observance by individuals or communities. It's all about a changed inner reality, which is either real or it's nothing. A new way of looking at the world, and what Jesus is trying to do is create that internally in your psyche, in your imagination, as well as your mind. Let me show you this picture. That, do you remember him? Why don't they show them anymore? Really? Maybe they do. Maybe, I, I don't know. But I don't think they show pictures of um, animals trying to blow each other up with TNT anymore. But they should, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> Jesus' stories and his statements are like little packages of explosive. That's how they work. Let me describe to you who I think you probably are. If 
you're anything like me, you're basically a baby that's got a bit bigger and learned the way the world works according to you. You've learned a set of rules which work for you. You think this is how the world is and works. And that's called experience. It's called growing up. It's called um, learning. And everything you do and say comes through that lens, through that construct. And it probably does work for you, but it's still only your version. It's only yours. Yours is the only life you've ever lived. Unless you're a Buddhist. In which case, see me afterwards. Alright? It's your view of the world. Jesus' task was to come into that world and tell us reality. How the world really works. No matter what your experience tells you or implies to you. Because your experience is very limited. And as a, a priest or a minister, as a communicator or interpreter of that, um, my primary job is to try and get you to buy into that, to understand it, to interpret what Jesus was trying to say. And Jesus did two things, didn't he? He went around doing things, overcoming the harshness of the real world by bringing the kingdom. But in his teaching, what he does is he builds another world an alternative one, and then invites you to step into it. He calls it the kingdom of God. And this passage, the Sermon on the Mount, so-called, is all about bits and pieces that behave like that. Um, There's a book I can recommend to you by a lady called Alison Morgan, M-O-R-G-A-N, The Wild Gospel, it's called, and she says this about his parables and also about the Sermon on the Mount. So these sayings are weapons of warfare. They don't work as careful, logical, systematic illustrations of life. They work only as carefully packaged boxes of explosive. Beware of trying to make Jesus' teaching logically coherent. He wasn't born in Surrey. He's born in Judea 2,000 years ago. He communicates in a different way. And he communicates in a very similar way to that advert. Most of his stories are designed to do that, to penetrate through your brain and into your imagination and get you to start thinking differently. And Jesus, basically what he does is he startles and he shocks and he explodes worldviews and he builds other ones. And he asked this question. You can move on to the next one, Alex. He says this. This is what Jesus says. He says, what if? What if we lived like this? What would it look like if we all did this? And Christianity, unfortunately for centuries, has tried to be an organ of control. Tried to be a, a set of values which it would impose top-down and tell people what to do. And of course, systematically over the years, people have rejected that. And I think, I passionately believe actually, the day of the the so-called control freak is gone. And the day of the imagination igniter, someone who will get people to buy into things because they want to, has probably come. So what does Jesus actually say? If you've got a Bible in your hands and you flick back to the previous chapter 
chapter 4, verses 17, he announces the commencement of his ministry in Matthew. In Luke it's slightly different, but in Matthew he says this, he says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. This word repent is quite interesting. Before I get on to the sermon, let me spend two minutes on this. The Greek word is metanoia, which means to completely change your way of thinking. It does not mean to be sorry. It means that in English, but it doesn't mean that in the Greek. It means to change the way you think. If you're French and you looked at the word repent, you'd know that. Because it means rethink. Change the way you think. Completely change. It involves being sorry. It involves making a decision to turn and do things differently. But that's not actually what the word means. It means to change the way you see the world. And it asks us to think beyond our limitation or thought patterns, that worldview that you've built, and build something else, something much more positive than just looking back and feeling ashamed. It's all about looking forward and feeling positive and feeling passionate and feeling I can be different. And my past does not disqualify the future. I can do things in a different way. And the Sermon on the Mount only makes sense if you see it as a visionary imagination of God's intended world. What he wants life to be like. A few things to say about it. Firstly, Jesus' words face up to reality. The things that Polly read out to us face up to the reality of the way the world is. So this is imagination, but it's not pretense. So it's visionary, but it's not um, kind of ignoring the reality of life. Jesus says that there are many people who are not fortunate, who do suffer, that the world is not in a good place, that life hurts, it's tough. And we know for billions of people today it remains tough. Things are very, very not right. But what he's saying is, that the kingdom of God becomes real first when it becomes real inside. It takes shape as a reality in my heart and then finds its way out into the way and the things that we do. Governments do not have and have never had the power to really change that. It's people that change that. Our systems always tell us we're on the right track. If only we'll try a little bit harder, cut a few costs, or spend a bit more money, which just vary from one to the other. It's never going to happen. God says that's untrue. Change comes from within. Secondly, Jesus then puts forward a new reality, something which is upside down to what we would say is true. And he says that, Know that in God you are not one of life's losers, but you are one of life's winners. If your heart is set on God and you realize and acknowledge your need of him, then wherever you are in life's hierarchy, you are one of his uh, winners. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. If that's you and you recognize your need of God, God is on your side. And that announcement by Jesus was one of those boxes of explosive in the worldview that he spoke to. It was the opposite of what they thought he was going to say. 
He announces it to zealots and revolutionaries who wanted a political kingdom of God and were prepared to get there by violence. He announced it to the rich who assumed that their very circumstances were an announcement that God was already blessing them. He announced it to the Pharisees who thought that the kingdom of God could be built by religious observance. And he announces it to the poor and the pathetic who thought they were cursed and rejected of God because the adverts of the day said they were. When they switched on their Judean television sets and, and changed over to ITV, that's what the adverts said. The rich are blessed and the poor are not. And Jesus says that worldview is wrong. It's so wrong you don't understand how wrong it is. Let me tell you what the right one is. Everything you probably think about the way the world works is probably joyously wrong. And what a relief. What a relief. So Jesus invites us into something else. He invites us into this upside down world of the kingdom of God. Two things to finish with. When we ask that question, just how different do you want to be? When you read this passage, that must sort of scream out at you. Firstly, Jesus is asking us to ask ourselves what kind of people we want to be. And some of the things in that passage are fairly obvious. He says that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are peacemakers, are blessed. We think, well, that's actually, yes, I can understand that. I can see why such people would be blessed. I can see why God would be pleased with people about that. And God has his heart set on people who are alienated, who are excluded, the marginalized, those people who lack for basic things. And he has a passion for them. God is the rescuer, the restorer, the lifter of our heads, the restorer of our souls. And there are states which people are in that he wants to rescue them from. So the first thing is, what percentage of my time do I spend devoted to that kind of domain? That domain of humanity that needs me to be the instrument of God's blessing. A couple of things I'd say about that. Whatever you do, do it in prayer. And next Saturday morning, with an emphasis on that kind of thing, we will be having a prayer breakfast. We'll put it on the website, it will be on Facebook, and it will be at Richard and Julia's house in Dorset Road. 33, 8 o'clock. It's, it's, um, what are you pointing at? It doesn't, I'm pointing at them. That's your house. That's the altar. That's Richard. Okay. <laughs> Next Saturday morning, if you want to engage in intercessory prayer for the poor in spirit, for the marginalized, come along, join us. That's what we'll be doing. Also, just to encourage you, over Christmas, we um, collected money to participate practically in this part of Jesus' sermon. And we raised eight and a half grand in ten days or so. The Christmas, eight and a half thousand pounds we sent to Tear Fund for the Give the Gift of Freedom appeal.
Secondly, though, is this. I think there is a very real sense in which God calls us to become poor in spirit and become meek. I don't deny the first meaning, which these are people that God is for, but also think that this is almost a specification of how we are to empathize with the world. If you hunger for righteousness, you're merciful and pure in heart. Yes, I can understand that, but it seems odd to ask me to become poor in spirit. Why would I say that? I mean it in this sense alone, that above all else, whatever we do, we must always acknowledge our abiding need of God in everything. The moment we accept the Western view and think that we're self-sufficient and powerful, the moment we think that we are the ones who help everybody else and need no help from God, is the moment we are lost. And the meek are those who see the world as it really is, do not imagine themselves as more important than they really are. The meek person is amazed that God loves him, is amazed that God can use them, is amazed at the blessings that they have in life, and is grateful for it. Meekness, I think, is at the heart of true worship, not pride, not self-sufficiency or merit. When Jesus tells the story of the tax collector in the temple, remember the little box of explosive? Well, this, 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 this story was actually offensive to say that a tax collector could go into a temple and be justified before God. The tax collector cries out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's all he says. And Jesus says, the religious man at the front went home the same state that he came, and the man that you hate, the tax collector who works for the Romans, the quisling, the traitor, went home justified by God. Would you have had the courage to stand in the marketplace and do that? But these, these are offensive statements. So imagine a world. Imagine a worship meeting. Imagine a church meeting, a Bible study, a prayer meeting, like the one we're going to have next week, populated by people who have abandoned their self-reliance, have an absolute need of God, and possess his mourning heart for the suffering and the poor, and regard meekness as the Christ-like virtue to pursue. I just want to leave those questions with you. I don't think I can tell you the answers. How different do you want to be? How much would you like to change your mind? And what would you like 2012 to be like in that journey? We're doing something which can help. And uh, this week, uh, in our Bible in a year reading, we actually read the Sermon on the Mount. Thursday, Friday, I think it was. If you'd like to be part of this and join with us in this journey, you will read far more puzzling statements than this during the course of the year. But do pick up one of these, or you can go onto the website and download it. You can stick the the PDF on your phone and and have it always with you. Uh, There's also, if you go onto the website, a Facebook community you can join and travel this road with us. When you read it like that, it's radical. It completely changes your worldview.
I want to leave it there. I just want to leave that statement with you. What if? What if we got anywhere near obeying the Sermon on the Mount or grasping what Jesus was trying to do? And in what ways might you make a start this week?